1: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Live podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Loop Podcast. I know it probably is a nail-biter that has kept you on the edge of your seat all week long, but we're back from where we left midstream in the middle of Act 3 of Julius Caesar. Last week, we broke down Act 2, and we began the discussion of Act 3, finishing with an analysis of Brutus' speech, where he has convinced the Roman population on the basis of his nobility and virtue that Caesar was truly a threat that must be destroyed.
0: That's correct. And this week we will begin by reading what is the most famous speech from this play, Anthony's response to Brutus' speech. Now, if you remember, Anthony has dragged Caesar's body from the foot of Pompey's statue to where he is speaking, and he will begin to speak. If you remember, Cassius didn't even want Anthony to be able to speak at all. Actually, he didn't want him to live, but much less speak. And Brutus overruled Cassius, claiming that he didn't want to look like a butcher, He further claimed that Anthony wasn't really a threat. He's saying Anthony is just a limb of Caesar and could do no more than a limb can do if it's not attached to the body. This seems to be in direct reference to the many, many references in Plutarch's history of Anthony. This guy, Anthony, must have had some reputation. Apparently, he partied so hard that nobody in Rome had taken him seriously up to this point. Well, this is going to prove to be a miscalculation, as we're about to see. And let's quickly, before we listen to what Anthony does, let's kind of review Brutus' speech. You want to do that?
1: Um, it's easy to review quickly because it was actually an extremely short speech, especially for a man that considered himself a noted orator. But basically, he said, I killed Caesar because I thought it was ambitious. He wanted to enslave all of you. He was a bad guy, so I handled it. As you know, I am noble, and I do noble things. I loved him, but I love our country more. So since I made this very knowledgeable judgment, you should just trust me. What do you think of that?
0: Well, that's exactly it. He accuses Caesar of being a tyrant, but he's a tyrant because I said he was a tyrant. And it's amazing how often the I said so argument is actually used in real life, not just by Anthony, but by a lot of people and people tend to think that if you say it with a lot of passion or if you're more expressive in the accusation, the more angry you are or the bigger the fit, then the more true the accus- accusation must actually be. Brutus is way too proud to be throwing fits. He does consider himself to be a stoic and we'll talk about that more in a minute, but the gist of it is this. He's going to say he was so, I said he was, so he was. And If I may add some real-world applications here, which we rarely do, but it's worth mentioning, Shakespeare is teaching us a very important life lesson. If someone makes a claim, even if you trust them, even if you love them and care for that person, you should always make them justify it. Why should I believe you? It's not that you have to distrust the essence of the person, but it means that you feel that you're entitled to the respect of a justification. And the respect to be able to agree or disagree with the line of reasoning. If they do, if someone does respect you, then they'll tell you. And if their reasons don't follow, then you have a problem.
1: <laughs> hmm. What do you think of that? So, I'm supposed to believe what you just said because you just said so?
0: No, you're supposed to believe what I said <laughs> because my line of reasoning is flawless.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's fair enough, but there is one more reason. You should always support your claim with real reasons instead of the I said so argument. Uh, if you tell why, it does help make your case stick for longer than a minute, which is the length of time Brutus's speech proved convincing? About a minute. What we're about to see is that Brutus's case did not stick. It didn't survive one competing speech. So, Christy, read for us with... Please, your best Shakespearean intonation, this most famous speech of Mark Antony, the one school children memorize or they're forced to by your brutal hand.
0: (laughs) Not just mine. Of course, let me say, though before I do, we don't actually know what Antony actually said in this case. As far as I know, nobody actually recorded this speech uh, we do know that it was effective, so I guess the fact that it's one of Shakespeare's most famous passages is appropriate. Uh, of course, I love to recite it myself, and I'll tell you a secret, even if, wherever I am, if I'm on in an amphitheater on a stage and no one's watching, these are the lines I see. So, let's go for them. Well,
1: first of all, I have witnessed that firsthand. <laughs> that is indeed True.
0: It's, it's just not possible. you gotta pretend to be somebody. I saw
1: it happen once at the uh, the Oracle of Delphi in Greece.
0: <laughs> Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often turred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus, is honor, and a, for Brutus is an honorable man, so are they all, all honorable men, come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me, but Brutus says he was ambitious and Brutus is an honorable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this and Caesar seem ambitious? When that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? But Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure, he's an honorable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I speak what I do know. You all did love him once, and not without a cause. What cause withhold you then to mourn for him? Oh, judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar, and I must pause till it comes back to me. All right, let me break it down. Listen to what he does. The first thing that he's going to do is he's going to humanize Caesar. He qualifies his statement to say, I'm not going to praise Caesar, which of course is exactly what he wants to do. But he implies that the only reason that I won't bother to praise him is that nobody ever remembers the good things people do anyway. We only remember the bad. And so he wants this to make it about you and say, you're right, no one ever remembers my good stuff either. Oh, I should feel sorry about this. This is so true. And so he kind of cleverly goes after Brutus. And let me say Anthony did pay attention in rhetoric class, and he does know how to blend credibility with reason, but the elements that he's going to add here, and we're going to start to see this right here, is he's going to mess with the emotions, and through that, he's going to attack Brutus's credibility, and really, Crutus himself. Now, let me remind you of one more thing before we get any farther into this. I don't know if you remember from our discussion of last week. I think we mentioned it. If not, we'll mention it now. When Brutus agreed to speak, well, when Brutus agreed to let Anthony speak, he made him make a promise, and the promise was that Anthony would never say anything negative about the conspirators. Now, for us, we would say, well, in fact, my, a student in my first period class this year did say, how could you control that? How do you know if someone would, you say sure, and then say whatever you want, but I guess they didn't operate that way because he doesn't. He's very careful. They're
1: all extremely honorable men. Why would they do anything else?
0: (laughs) Extremely honorable. So he he wants to keep the letter of the law. And so he's not going to say anything bad about Brutus, sort of. He's never going to explicitly say anything. But what he does is he uses this very clever rhetorical strategy that we all know and we all use. And we call it irony. Irony, verbal irony in any way, is when you say one thing, but you actually mean the opposite. Now, some people said, oh, you mean sarcasm. This speech is not sarcastic, because sarcasm is when you're mocking somebody and when you're angry, per se. Uh, This isn't sarcastic. So we don't have this feeling of mockery. It's a little bit more clever than that. And as the speech gets on, the blasts of irony are going to get harsher and harsher. So his argument is, Caesar's not ambitious. And let me give you three emotional incidents that's gonna prove Caesar isn't ambitious. I'm gonna say three nice things about Caesar. So the first nice thing he says about Caesar, well, he says he has brought many captives home to Rome. In other words, he made you rich. He he went off to the Gaul, he conquered people, they had slaves, they brought the slaves, you sold the slaves back to their family members, and everybody got rich. So Caesar made you rich. And then he's gonna say, When you cried, Caesar cried too. And then the third thing is gonna say, Well, you saw I tried to give him the crown three times and he never took it. Now, what's interesting about those three incidences, and I think it's an important note, thing to notice when somebody's trying to convince you of something that they actually have nothing to do with the argument at hand. He says he's ambitious, and then he tells you a nice thing about him, but it had nothing to do with ambition, if that makes any sense at all. Okay, he brought, even, and those three things are all true. Does that mean that he's not a tyrant? Does that mean that he's nothing like what Brutus accused him of? No, but that kind of gets lost because in the sentimentality of the moment, you're supposed to say, oh, that's so true, I got money, oh, that's so true, I remember when he cried, oh, that's so true, I saw that I was there at the Luper and this overwhelming feeling of emotion is going to make you sway. Now, obviously, when we talked about it, Casca's take on it was that he wanted to take the crown, and he just was making people, wanting to people make him take it, and it didn't work out, but all that to say, these emotional stories are going to win the day. Uh, By the end of the speech, people are going, oh, that's so true. Anthony, you're right. But of course, Anthony's not done with them because he does what a lot of great speakers do. If you have the opportunity, and he does, he brings out the visual aids. Oh, my. And the first visual aid he's going to pull out is this will. And he's going to say, here's a parchment with the seal of Caesar." I found it in his closet. It's his will. Let but the commons hear this testament, which, pardon me, I do not mean to read, or they would go and kiss dead Caesar's wounds. And of course, he's saying, if you only knew what he has written in this will, you would just be so sad. I, I can't afford to read it to you.
1: Well, before we move on, can I point out that so far, in Anthony, you've given him a Southern Belle in distress voice. <laughs> you've given him a Bronx voice or accent. Uh, so um, he's an actor, I guess. So we're <laughs> much better than
0: me, clearly.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> and this is an interesting historical event in real life. Anthony was not the numbskull school party boy at this point. Uh, Although it was clear that he has that going on, after the assassination, Antony managed to seize all of Caesar's funds for his next war campaign, plus he talked Calpurnia into giving him access to all of Caesar's papers.
0: Yes, and in this scene, we're going to see him pull it out and artfully dangle it in front of the crowd, but you see that he doesn't actually read it. One guy is going to get so upset that he says, they were traitors, which exactly is the conclusion that... Anthony's trying to get them to draw. But Anthony is just getting started with this will in his hand that he doesn't read. He's going to go down to the body. And, of course, remember, this is Caesar's dead body. And he's going to pick up the mantle, or I guess the toga. And it has all these holes in it because he's been stabbed all these times.
1: 23 to be exact.
0: He's going to look. He's going to recount all the beautiful memories. Oh, I remember when he was wearing this. And, of course, this is ridiculous. The event he actually recalls happened 13 years before the murder and so clearly it's not the same mantle but it doesn't matter you get the idea and of course the worst line is when he points out the particular hole and he says this is the hole that brutus made and as you know brutus was caesar's angel judge oh you gods how dearly caesar loved him the most unkindest cut of all and then when he says this in dramatic form he's going to rip back the mantle and he's going to show Caesar's body and it's full of cuts and the crowd is raised up and they're just go nuts and they start screaming revenge about seek burn fire kill slay let not a traitor live
1: um, I think I spotted some irony here <laughs>
0: <laughs> He's at least really spotted some emotion.
1: Well, uh, Brutus, known as Caesar's angel.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Before he stabbed him to death. Anyway, um, yes, that is indeed what we would call a passionate emotional appeal or pathos. We may all claim to make decisions with our minds, but we are most persuaded when our emotions are moved. And Antony made them sad when he made them mad.
0: Right. He makes them sad, and then he makes them mad, and he's not even done yet, because now he's going to start reading this will. And they've already got themselves worked up to a frenzy. And it turns out, and this is so un- um, unusual and, and magnanimous on Caesar's part, he just happens to leave 75 drachmas to every single Roman mm. citizen. Hmm. He also is going to leave his private house to be turned into a park. And, of course, the crowd just goes absolutely mad. And that's when Anthony just slithers away, and he's going to say to himself, Now let it work. Mischief, thou art afoot. Take thou what course thou will.
1: I love that line. (laughs) (laughs) Thou art afoot. Yes. Take thou what course thou will. And, of course, now the conspirators know things have gone awry. Um, It's all but too obvious that they should have killed Antony, and they should never have given him the audience. For we see one servant saying that Brutus, Brutus and Cassius are rid like madmen through the gates of Rome. They are on their way out of town. And I want to point out a historical note, which I'm sure Shakespeare put in this scene very deliberately. Antony, although he wins the day here, does turn out to have a bad end. He's going to get involved with Cleopatra, and that's going to go poorly. Shakespeare will immortalize that dilemma in the play Antony and Cleopatra, which not as many people have read, but a lot have at least seen the picture, the movie with Elizabeth Taylor playing Cleopatra.
0: True, and Shakespeare does kind of allude to that whole disaster with dramatic irony here. That's when the audience knows that something the characters in the play don't, because he has Antony saying, Here was a Caesar, when comes such another? And then 11 lines later, in arrives Octavius' servant. Because literally in the next act, another Caesar literally is going to walk in. So on that introduction, Gary, before we get into Act 4, tell us who is Octavius Caesar? We talked about him last week, but I think the connection is important. So let's kind of review that.
1: Okay. Um, Octavius Caesar is Caesar's nephew. Uh, And and if that will business was true at all, which we don't know, because Antony didn't actually let anyone look at it. But if he had the will, what we do know is that Octavius, not Antony, is Caesar's rightful heir. And what's more, he has actually adopted him as his son that means that Octavius, not Antony, is the one who legally has a right to all that money and the house and whatever else. If Caesar had been crowned king, which we know he wasn't, this wouldn't even been an issue. If Caesar had been king, Octavius would have inherited the throne, but if you remember from the first podcast, this wasn't the case. Um, he was a perpetual ruler, but not yet a king, and there is a difference. Uh, Octavius had literally changed his name by virtue of his adoption to Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. So, everyone would have had no doubt of his lineage in this case.
0: Right. And I want to say there is this last scene in act 3 that's kind of strange. In fact, uh I the last performance I saw of Jesus, Julius Caesar, they they even they cut it out and I'm sure a lot of people do because it kind of it's a tangent somewhat. So what we have in that scene is these citizens are running in the streets of Rome, they're called plebeians, and they run into this guy uh, named Cinna, but he's not the same Cena that's the conspirator. He's a random guy who happens to have the same name. And what Shakespeare does is he has them come up to him, and they aggress him, and they have a, a bunch of questions for him, and uh, they create he, they accuse him of some things. And then they stab him or, or kill him, uh, so to speak, in this random mob-like form.
1: Which is obviously an expression of the crowd mob mentality that's overtaken the whole city at this yeah, point. Yeah, so it's
0: the kind of idea we get mad at something that happened on TV, so we go down to the Walgreens and vandalize it, and the poor sap who owns that really has no connection, but I'm angry. But we, I think it's a little bit, even a bit more... Um, interesting than just mocking mob mentality. In a sense, he's just mocking the whole murder scene, and he's hyperbolizing what Cassius and and, uh, Brutus have done. He replays the murder in mock fashion. So this guy is butchered. There are speeches and accusations. They're obviously sensitive, senseless, and he's trying to hyperbolize the murder of Caesar, and in some sense, satirize everything that we have just seen played out on the stage act four is right after that and it's considered the boring one because act three you have all this and then and the murder of Caesar and then act five you're going to have the war and in between you have act four which is basically two parallel scenes we have a short one with team one and we have team Anthony and Octavius versus team 2 which is team Cassius and Brutus and each one of them are preparing in their own way and this scene just kind of shows the preparations before we march into into war in act 4 so uh there is a lot that doesn't happen in the play that happens in real life that's kind of been deleted So put these skips together for us, Gary, historically, so that we can kind of walk in and, okay, we saw this guy get murdered in Act 3, and then Act 4, we have all these people setting up for war. What's going on?
1: Well, the history of events at this point in the real Roman timeline is complicated. I mean, I I can see why Shakespeare is going to shorthand a lot of it. The time gap between Act 3 and Act 4 in real life is a year and a half. In that time, Antony loses all his power in Rome. Octavius allies himself with Cicero, and Cicero, a truly respected orator who absolutely cannot stand Antony, helps Octavius rally everyone behind the new Caesar. The conspirators are all scattered all over the Roman Empire with armies of their own. Finally, Brutus and Cassius are going to consolidate the armies, they, because they each have their own. They're going to consolidate them in the eastern side of the Roman Empire. And this is where Act V is going to take place when Shakespeare takes us to the battle lines and the big final confrontation.
0: So we have a Caesar, we just don't have the same Caesar. So we have Octavius Caesar and we have Anthony And in Act 4, when we open up, we have what history has called the second triumvirate. Because we have Anthony that we know, Octavius who we know, but now they got this new guy, Lepidus, who Anthony makes fun of. Who's this guy?
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, in real life, Anthony and Octavius don't really get along at all. Um, They're actually rivals for the throne. But neither one can really pull it all off. And although it looks like Octavius, Octavius is going to, this guy named Lepidus manages to talk the two of them into joining forces with him in the mix.
0: And so Act 4 begins with these three guys having a meeting, and it's horrible. Anthony apparently is not the heartbroken, simple-minded, southern belle, like you described, <laughs> lover of Caesar. Even though you use that voice. <laughs> That he portrayed himself to be in Act 3. He has the will, and they're taking it apart and saying out loud what they are not going to do. So so much for the 75 drachmas. He's also going to do something that we would call today a purge. They're creating a prescription list. Gary, tell us what that is.
1: Well, first of all, the idea of the purge is as old as government. Uh, and they occur in every century. But anyway, in the Roman sense, in Roman law, a person under proscription could be killed by anyone, and the killer had no fear of murder charges being brought against him. It's a kind of vigilante justice. And if you were on the list, people could just take you out. So let's say you're on a list. Your neighbor decides he doesn't like you. He comes and murders you. No worries. He's done it on behalf of the government.
0: Well, it's very ruthless, and... You would think, in some sense, there's a little bit of nobility in here. But in this case, uh, they're doing it to raise money.
1: Yes, it is ruthless. And let me tell you, the primary reason to put someone on a prescription list, by the way, is not because they were a threat. And this is what makes it even worse. They were killing him so that they could seize their property. They needed money to fund this war. And the easiest way to do it is to steal dead people's things that were considered enemies of the state so
0: it's a fundraising strategy
1: of the worst kind (laughs) sounds like well anyway i won't name countries but there are countries that practice such things another thing to notice from this little scene besides the fact anthony is willing to murder anyone for this power he plans on cutting out lepidus and axe octavius to help him he has zero loyalty and that's something you can say about brutus's crew at least they were loyal to each other uh, so far as they are, and they will be because they're all going to go down together. Uh, but furthermore, what Shakespeare doesn't include in this scene, but something we know from history, is that beyond the thousands of senators and others that they uh, that they wanted out for political or financial reasons, Anthony wants to include Cicero on that list to be murdered.
0: And, of course, I find that even more ruthless now that you we know that this is in a year and a half in the making and Cicero has backed Octavius teenager back to Octavius and made him into the ruler that he is Octavius throws him under the bus when it comes down to needing Anthony and so yeah Cicero gets put on that list and later on in act four we're going to see that he is actually murdered I do want to read this funny I mean this is the way just the way that Anthony talks in this scene. Is kind of funny if you want to, you know, juxtapose it to the way he talked in the act right before. So um, Anthony is going to is going to say, we got to get rid of this guy, uh, Lepidus. And Octavius is going to try to defend him. And he's going to say, um, Octavius, I have seen more days than you. And though we lay these honors on this man to ease ourself of diverse, slanderous loads He shall but bear them as the ass bears gold, to groan and sweat under the business, either led or driven, as we point the way. And having brought our treasure where we will, then take we down his load and cut him off, like to the empty ass, to shake his ears and graze in commons. And Octavius is going to say, well, he's a tried and valiant soldier. To which Anthony is going to say, so is my horse, Octavius. (laughs) So... (laughs) You can kind of tell how little regard for loyalty or humanity we see in this character of Anthony, who one scene before was talking about how I just need to go look at the body and (laughs) wait till it comes back to me, my emotions.
1: Are you saying people pursuing power would be manipulative and false?
0: In this play, we're going to see that everyone is bad and it's the question of who is worse.
1: Thus Shakespeare's point.
0: Yes, and Scene Two of Act Four, we're going to leave Rome for the first time. So in Rome, we got these guys doing their fundraising initiative to raise money because the the way you win a war is to have funding. You have to pay these soldiers. The more soldiers you have, the more bodies you have, you're going to win. So. Both of these guys, they know we've got to have more bodies on the ground than the other two guys. So we've got Octavius and Anthony throwing each other's friends and relatives under the bus to steal their stuff on one side. And now we're going to switch in scene two of act four because Cassius and Brutus have the same fundraising problem. They too have to pay their troops and they too don't have any money. And so they are congregated now on the plains of Sardis, Far away as when they ran from Rome, they ran far. Gary, tell us how far. Where <laughs> is Sardis?
1: Well, first of all, what is Sardis? Um, Sardis in Asia Minor, 45 miles from the Aegean Sea. Uh, today, we would call it Sahili, Turkey, and it's about 1,213 miles from Rome. Um, there's a travel advisory, though, on Google that the turn by turn directions isn't available. <laughs> In case you were wondering, it's not all that easy to get to, not even today. It says by car it would take one day and one hour, plus you'd have to take a ferry. To its credit, it was a glorious town at the time with one of the largest temples to Artemis of the ancient world there. So it wasn't a bad spot to land.
0: As you would expect, the conspirators, of course, like we said, they've got the same money problems as Anthony and Octavius, but they can't use prescription because they're in another country a thousand miles away. So they have to use another form of ancient fundraising, the technique of plundering villages. Or bribery wouldn't
1: eliminate stand be less violent.
0: <laughs> they don't sell chocolate, okay. but anyway. So this scene has been famously called the tent scene. Brutus and Cassius is kind of long. At first, they're going to have this argument over money, and we're going to see this issue of nobility or who's honorable come up once again. Brutus is mad at Cassius because Cassius has been accepting bribes for positions, and he's been ransacking villages. He says, you have itchy palms, which is another old-fashioned way to say, you take bribes. And then he's going to reference the the ransacking of the villages, and he's going to say, I can raise no money by vile means. By heavens, I had rather coin my heart and drop my blood for drachmas than to write from the hard hands of peasants their vile trash by any indirection. But the problem is he has no money either and he's begging Cassius for money, but at the same time he's fussing at him because he's not willing to lower himself to what everybody else is doing to raise cash. And so we see this idea that Brutus really kind of is a strange and conflicted person. In one sense, he really is noble. He doesn't want to bribe people. He doesn't want to ransack villages. He wants to live up to these Roman ideals in his own mind. He wants to build a better kingdom, a kingdom where we don't have to bribe or hurt people and rob from peasants. But then there's this other side of him that actually did kill Caesar. And so we can't pull off necessarily good things without doing bad things. He had to kill Caesar. Now he needs money that Cassius has gotten by doing horrible things. And so when this question arises, can one be noble and survive? Brutus is going to feel the tension. And we hear him say very clearly, remember the Ides of March? Did not great Julius bleed for justice's sake? What villain touched his body that did stab and not for justice? What shall one of us that struck the foremost man of all this world but but for supporting robbers? Shall we now contaminate our fingers with base bribes and sell the mighty space of our large honors for so much trash as may be grasped thus? I had rather be a dog and bathe the moon than such a Roman. What do you think of that?
1: Well, that's another uh, defense of his own nobility there once again. (laughs) Even though he's a murderer, which means, or it goes a long way to prove the point, at your core, most people just cannot think badly of themselves. And he's a classic case in that. And I want to add to all that, they are in a tent. And that's not exactly a soundproof room. And so all the soldiers outside the tent would have heard all of that.
0: True. And they're going to get louder and louder They're going to resort to name-calling and threats and just kill me now. But fortunately, things are going to get worked out. Brutus is going to claim that it's just not in his nature to be angry. And we're going to find out that the reason that he says that he's so upset and he's acting so out of character for him is it turns out that Portia has just killed herself By swallowing fire. And I think this might be a good place for us to land for today. But before we we say goodbye to these chaps, tell us, Gary, how does one go about swallowing fire? What actually happens to Portia?
1: Well, (laughs) Uh wow. First of all, if you get a literal picture in your mind, apparently she would just grab some embers out of a fire and swallow them. Um, but more than likely, she could have uh, locked herself in a small room with a fire and died of asphyxiation that way.
0: Well, they say uh, that Cicero even wrote a letter to Brutus about Portia talking about some illness. So she may just have died from a disease, but Shakespeare being Shakespeare – included the sensational alternative uh either way the timeline isn't really relevant it's just a crazy bit of historical hoopla that has portia back home swallowing charcoals over the the demise of of what she thinks is going to be her husband well
1: i can imagine the effect it would have had on an audience in shakespeare's day because not many people think of such a thing Mm -hmm. and here he includes it as happening to an important character in the story and i'm sure the uh the play, play goers of the time period would have been stunned.
0: <laughs> well, at any rate, they're going to work it out and they're going to discuss, uh, of course, their battle plans and a little bit more about the things going back in Rome. Uh, and we will pick up on that, I guess, next week as we finish out Act 4 and Act 5 and we conclude with Julius Caesar.
1: Great. Well, thanks for being with us today. We hope you enjoyed uh, everything, including uh, Christy's voices that she (laughs) narrated for the characters during the play. Um, Please be our friend on Facebook. We keep you up to date there, so check out How to Love Lit Podcast on our Facebook page, How to Love Lit Podcast on our Instagram page. Please go to our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. Lots of great things there for our listeners and for teachers. And most importantly, if you like our podcast, please tell your friends. We love seeing um, new people join as our listeners.